Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says, so we can know what to believe. Our first question comes from a question that was asked at our end, the end of our Q&A last Saturday. And the question had to do with 1 Corinthians 14, 34, which says, Let women keep silent in the church. So the question was asked, what does this mean? And what does it mean about women today? Well, we do know that there is some controversy over whether or not women have a role the same as men in the church. This is egalitarians and complementarians, or complementarianism. Egalitarians coming from them being equal and complementarian being that they are complementary to one another. What's important is what the Bible says. And it does different it does definitely tell us that there are different roles for men and women in the Bible. And that the man has a headship role and that the woman is to be under submission to the man. Now, obedience and submission are words that we don't like. And the word submission is to her husband and not to men in general. So what exactly was Paul talking about in, I think it's um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, whatever it is, when it says, let women keep silence in church, it seems that the Corinthians were a bit out of control. Uh, it's a corrective chapter. And um, we know that it doesn't mean that they can't talk in church because earlier in the same book, Paul had said, uh, talking about women prophesying, keeping their heads covered, this would be 1 Corinthians 11, when they prophesy or when they pray. So we know that women could talk in church. It's been suggested that we don't exactly know the problem that Paul is addressing. The book of 1 Corinthians was written in response to questions that the Corinthians had. And Paul's kind of making his way down that list as you make your way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we're not exactly sure as to what problem there was. We also believe that's the case where Paul says, I do not have a woman to have authority over a man. The word authority there is a, is a negative word for authority. It's not a good word. But nevertheless, men and women have different roles. We I believe that the Bible teaches complementarianism, that God has roles for men and women. They are equal. The Bible says to God, there's no Jew nor Gentile, no male or female. And it's talking about the relationship that we have with God there in Galatians chapter six. People try to make that say something that it isn't saying, that there's absolutely no difference. There's differences between people and there's differences between roles. Some people are called to be pastors and some people aren't. And the person who is called to be a pastor, a shepherd, a leader is to be a servant and isn't better than anybody else. I like to use the analogy of a general and a colonel in the army. The colonel is in submission to the general, but the general might not be as good of a person as the colonel. But the position that he holds causes there to be some respect. When it comes to a husband and wife, the Bible talks about the wife being submissive to the husband, but it also talks about the husband laying down his life for the wife. And I think that's very important for us to understand. It doesn't make them not equal. It just means that they have different roles. And this is what God wanted within the church. Uh, some people will say that it is cultural. 
Uh, some people will try to remove it any way they can. I heard one guy say of 1 Corinthians 14, 34, that it was not in the original Greek. The way he handled it was just to take it out of the Bible and just say, it's not in the original Greek. I do believe that it's saying there is some way in which women are not supposed to speak in church, but should keep silent. We were talking, uh, 1 Corinthians 14 is talking about the abuse of the gifts. So was there abuse of gifts going on by some women? And Paul was trying to correct that. There are other passages where Paul seems to be bringing correction in to a situation that we are not sure of. Uh, can women hold any role? Can they be worship leaders? Can they pray in church? Well, we know that they can pray because the Bible says that they can pray and that they can prophesy. So keep silent there doesn't mean to not talk at all. It's talking about certain situations. And unfortunately, we don't have all the details that help us to know it and understand it. So there are some limitations, what exactly those limitations are. Now, the question asked, what does this mean to women today, for women today? I think it means that women can be involved in ministry. And I think a lot of churches, they, they, they lose a lot because they don't get the gifting that God has given to women. But women should be under the authority of a man. Now, our culture isn't gonna like this. Some aren't gonna like what I'm saying. Nevertheless, that's what the Bible says. And we either believe that the Bible is inspired for the church of all time, or we can start picking and choosing through culture, and then we're gonna pick and choose everything that we don't like, that our culture doesn't like, away from it. I believe that a husband and a wife are the most healthy when the man is, is living for Christ, dying for his wife the way that Christ died for the church. And when the woman is respectful to her husband, the Bible tells women to respect their husbands. And I think there's something about men where we need respect. And a woman might say, well, go out and earn it first. And, and maybe there's some fairness to that. However, if you as a gal give respect to your husband, I think that there is a blessing that comes along with that. And I think one of those blessings is that your husband will step up to the game. Now, I know that this isn't true for everybody, right? But I'm just talking about men in general now, that a lot of times the reason men aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing or being the men they're supposed to be is because they don't have respect. So the bottom line is, yes, women can, can hold certain leadership positions in church. She needs to be under the authority of a, a man. It seems that the qualifications for an elder, for a pastor, for an overseer were all for men. And um, as I said, some people aren't gonna like it, but that's what the Bible says. And we believe that God has that for a reason. God gave a man the role of a father and a woman the role of a mother and bearing children. These are different roles. And God blesses and honors us when we are subject to the roles uh, that God has given us. So I do believe that we are, I do believe clearly that when the Bible says women keep silent in the church, that obviously it can't go against what was said earlier in the book, but it has to be the exact situation of the misuse and abuses of, uh, of spiritual gifts in the church, which is what 1 Corinthians 14 is dealing with. All right, so um, if you have a follow-up question on that, I'd love to hear that, all right? So it's good to see you guys, good to have you here. 
Uh, we have a service tonight uh, that is in the book of Revelation. We'll be covering Revelation 1, verses 4 through 5, which has so much information about Jesus. Uh, the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And um, so we'll, we'll, we will be covering that tonight. So we've got a question here from Rod. I'm going to get my Bible pulled up here first, okay? And so Rod says, the fig tree was symbolized a lot in the Old Testament as Israel spiritually, the spiritual nation. And then he gives some references, 1 Kings 4.25, Jeremiah 24.3, Joel 1.7. Wouldn't, that, wouldn't he continue in Revelation? So Rod, uh, thank you for your question. Let's take a look at um, let's take a look at a couple of these that might be helpful to us to really look at them. Uh, remember that the fig tree is a biblical tree. Uh, so is the the olive tree, and so is um, the vine, the grapevine. All of those are biblical, and all of those in the Bible were compared to the nation of Israel. They're, they're biblical and they're compared to the nation of Israel. So the question is, when the Bible talks about the fig tree in Luke 21, uh, Matthew 24, um, I'm not sure of the symbolism in, in Revelation. It may be there, but I'm, I'm not familiar with it. So I want to look at um, Jeremiah 24, 3. So Jeremiah 24, and then verse uh, three. So let's just see what that has to say. All right, so I'm gonna go ahead and uh, put this up on the screen and then we'll come back and we'll look at your question, Rod, all right? So uh, so here it says in verse three, um, then the Lord said to me, what, you, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad, very bad, which cannot be eaten. They are so bad. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, thus says the Lord of God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive, captive into Judah, whom I have sent out of their place to their own goods. So talking about Babylon. So yes, this is a reference to, um, that, is, that is a reference to Israel. Let's take a look at um, another one of yours just to, to take a look at this. Um, and I assume all of these are going to be, are, are these are going to be right. Let's take a look at Joel 1.7. That may be helpful. Joel 1.7. Bring it back up on the screen for you. And it says, um, he has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Lament like a virgin, grind with sackcloth are girded with sackcloth from the husband of your youth. The grain offering and the drink offering has been cut off from the house of the Lord. All right, so lament, um, he has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. So there you see the vine and the fig tree, both being a representative of Israel. All right, uh, so let's go ahead and come back and uh, talk about your question. So yeah, in the Bible, uh, fig tree, olive tree, the vine are all types of Israel in different places. I'm not sure of the reference in Revelation that you're talking about. If you want to add that in, Rod, well, we can take a look at that in a follow through. But Luke says something very interesting. Luke says, learn a lesson from the fig tree and all the trees. 
when you see that they are beginning to bud and come forth, know that summer is near. And then it says the generation that sees all of these things will by no means pass away. So people have tied that into the fig tree. And all of the trees, they just say, well, that's the nations, all of the nations in the last days. But when Israel becomes a nation, then the then that is going to be the last generation. And so people are looking for Jesus to return uh, before that generation passes away. The question is, what's a biblical generation? Early on in this gig, it was 40 years. So people said, well, Jesus is coming back in 1988 because Israel became a nation on May 14th of 1948. And then you got to subtract seven years and you get to 81. Well, 81 came and went, 88 came and went. Then they said it was the control of Jerusalem in 67, not the birth of the nation in 48. So that'll tell you right there that some people are having trouble with what the sprouting of the buds are. Is it the nation of Israel? Is it is it uh, becoming a nation? Is it Israel uh, taking control of Jerusalem? So then they went to 2000, good round number. Uh, 2007, subtract seven years, and you have the year 2000 from 67. Well, that came and went. And so now people have gone to 80 years, and that's just around the corner. So 80 years would be um, 88, I mean, excuse me, 28, 2028, minus seven years would be 21. Well, that's already come and gone. And so people are saying, well, Jesus is going to come back in in 28. And then some say 32. Some say it's coming back at 32. Um, because that's Jesus was crucified in 32 AD. That's exactly 2000 years. And then you subtract seven years and you get 25 for the rapture of the church. All these calculations I have criticized as of late that they are sensational and we should stay away from them. They have always throughout church history been proven wrong. People have had their arguments and I think we should stay away from it. I think that he's just saying, using a biblical tree, learn a lesson from the fig tree and all of the trees, when the leaves sprout forth, you know summer's near. And these things are going to happen quickly when we come to the end of the age. So when it starts, when you look up and you see all of these things and you see it all starting, know that that generation is not going to pass away. He was not giving us timing for when the Lord is going to return. There are people who will take the phrase, which I think is a phrase to say, we don't know the day or the hour, uh, meaning we don't know when Christ is going to return. It's a general phrase um, like we would use today, not to be taken literal, but but we would say certain things to mean one thing. And if you picked it apart, it could mean something else. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. He says, no man knows the day and hour, so stay ready. So you have to stay ready because we don't know when he's going to return. If we knew the day or the hour he was going to return, then we wouldn't have to stay ready. So it takes away the argument if this isn't just a turn of phrase, but it's actually trying to tell us that you can know the two days, but you can't know the day or the hour. So I do think that the fig tree represents Israel. Do I think it always represents Israel? No. And um, I think when Jesus cursed the fig tree, it did. It represented Israel because there was no fruit on it. And we, we could talk about that but it doesn't mean it always did. And in Luke, it says, and all of the trees, which is really important. I'm seeing if I can find that particular passage. I, I did. All right, let's go ahead and put it up on the screen for you here, Rod, and we'll take a look at it. It says, um, then he spoke a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already uh, are budding, you see and know yourself that summer is near. So also when you see these things happening, know the uh, when you see these things happening, know the kingdom of God is near. 
Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all of these things take place. And so connecting the fig tree to Israel is why people are setting dates. I think that this is a mistake. I don't think that we should do it. Uh, I think the fact that it says all the trees in Luke helps us to understand he was just making a general statement and it does make sense. It, I live in Tucson, Arizona. The mesquite trees are ugly and thin. Um, other trees are brown in the, in the, in the um, wintertime. But then all of a sudden the green starts to sprout and you can tell summer's near. You can't always tell summer's near by the temperatures in Arizona, in, in the Southern Arizona, but you can by the trees beginning to sprout, you know it's near. And I think that's the idea that he's talking about. Um, like I said, if you have a, a reference in Revelation that I'm unaware of, I'd love to take, to take a look at that and to see exactly what it says. All right, Rod, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question here from Psychman. Psychman says, question, if you want to, um, if you want to church where you felt almost ashamed. Oh, if you won't, sorry, if you went. If you went to a church where you felt almost ashamed to share the things God does in your life, no one there believes you, just judges you as proud. Would you feel lonely on your walk with God? All right, psych man, thank you very much uh, for your question. Um, let me go ahead and think this through. If I went to a church where I felt almost ashamed to share the things that God does in my life. No one believed me, just judged me as proud. Uh, would you not feel lonely on your walk with God? Um, I'm trying to think of when God speaks to me or when God's doing something in my life, I'm very careful, psych man, to say, I believe God told me, I think God's doing this, so that I leave room for there to be a mistake that I could make because I've thought God was doing something before in my life when God wasn't doing it. And I've certainly seen people say, God told me when God never told them. I've told the story before when I was in the four square church and um, one of the guys there who eventually became a four square pastor said to us, God told me I'm going to marry that girl. And she was like a 10 and he was like a five. And uh, we were all like, yeah, right. But he was adamant about it and he believed it. And even though she started dating someone else who was a good looking guy, by the way, and, and then they got engaged and he kept saying, no, God told me we're gonna get married. And then they got married and he was devastated because he thought he heard from God, but he didn't. And I've seen in, in all of the years of walking with Christ, which would now be 45 years, 47 years of walking with Christ, I've seen a lot of people make these mistakes where they claim God told them something or they heard something from God when they didn't hear it. And so I think it's a, a mistake to say things in such a way that you are so dogmatic that people would judge you that it didn't happen to you. So um, there are objective and subjective things, psych man. So if I'm saying, you know, I really was seeking God in prayer the other night and I'd really been struggling with my thoughts lately and um, God took me to a scripture and I, and, and I heard God speak to me that 
he had taken care of that and that I would no longer struggle with my thoughts. Well, that's subjective. And you say, and, and since then I haven't struggled with it, then there's no way I can judge you on that, whether that's right or wrong. Now, you may say something that's objective, meaning you're making a statement of truth. God showed me this. And if I think something is different in scripture, I have the right to be able to judge that. So if people weren't believing the things that I said God was doing in my life, because I'm very careful not to make it sound like I'm closer to God than anyone else, I, that I hear from God more than anybody else, because I don't believe that I am that I'm not worried if people judge what I say or not as being from God. In other words, I'm going to say, I believe it anyway. I believe that God told me this, or um, I think God did this in my life, which is just a way of being humble and allowing people a chance to judge it. When you start saying, I heard this, God told me that, and you're emphatic about it, you leave yourself open to a certain kind of judgment. Now, I don't know, psych man, what um what exactly you're talking about so i'm not judging you i'm just saying if i went to church it felt almost everybody was um felt ashamed um i was ashamed to share the things that god does in your life um because no one believes you uh i'm, I'm just trying to think of a case like there, there are times when people tell me you know have told me in the past, I saw an angel in my room last night and I go, eh, I don't know that I really believe them, but I don't think they should be ashamed. It doesn't mean that th that didn't happen. It just means I'm skeptical. I had some, some demonic things happen in my life when I was a young Christian and I know that they were true. And so people will tell me of some demonic things happening in their lives. And although I might be skeptical, I still want to leave room for perhaps those things could be true. Um, so, and, and judge you as proud. Um, I, I would, um, I've got to say, no, I don't think that I would feel lonely. I'm just answering your question here. Um, would you feel lonely in your walk with God? No, I wouldn't feel lonely in my walk with God. Um, because I'm not worried if, if people judge me as being proud or not. Uh, and I'm trying to walk humbly before God and I'm not trying to Lord over anyone and I'm not trying to make it look like I'm closer to God. And even if God does something, if even if God does something special in my life, I think that's for me. And I'm I'm not going to go tell people if God does something super miraculous. And then I'm going to tell people because God did it miraculous and people don't believe me. I'm not worried about that. So I'm going to say that I wouldn't I wouldn't be worried about it if it really has happened and it's true and people don't believe you. Well, okay, whatever, you know, God did what God did in your life. And um, if you are presenting it in a way, which is possible, that comes across as proud, then you want to represent it in a new way. You want to say, I believe the Lord said this. Or talk about the other night in prayer. I felt like God said this to me. That leaves room for someone to go, hmm, I don't know whether he really heard from God. You may say, well, I'm really sure that I heard from him. Well, then make, make a sure statement. If you're really sure that God spoke to you, then, then make the statement like that. Um, just do it humbly. And I think that that may be able, um, that would be able to help. And maybe this isn't even a question that you're having psych man about anything in your life. You're just asking if I would feel lonely. And my answer to that is no, because my relationships with people around me do not hinge on whether or not 
they believe what I'm saying about what God's done in my life. There are a handful of times I know God spoke to me and whether or not people believe him, it doesn't matter to me. All right, thank you, Psych Man. I appreciate your question. Um, so yeah, we had the musical, uh, looking at Rod's little comment here. We did have the, the Satan's body as a musical instrument, but I think we had the wrong reference last week. If anybody knows the right reference, we'll take time to look it up. Uh, there is a place where um, Satan is spoken of as having some kind of instrument in their, their body. All right, so uh, thank you. I appreciate that, Psych Man. We have a question from Jari. Jari says, is it true that God is outside of time as well as heaven? The new heaven and a new earth. I heard a pastor say, we won't learn. We will automatically know everything since we're outside of time. Yeah, this is a little bit of a debate. Me and my wife were talking about this just a couple of days ago. Whether when we get into heaven, are we gonna know everything? Is it gonna be like, boom, I know everything. Or is it gonna be, I'm gonna be continually learning. And I can't remember the passage, Jari, but I do believe that there's a passage that talks about us learning in heaven. I do not think that when we get our glorified bodies, this corruptible is put on incorruptible, this mortal is put on immortality, that we will be omniscient, knowing everything. I think that we will still learn. I think that we will still meet people and not know them and get to know them. Um, so I, I do think that that we will not be omniscient. And I think that that's the biggest thing here. God is omniscient. God knows everything. Uh, the angels don't. The angels desire to look into things and they're spiritual beings that are in heaven. And so, um, yeah, I think we're gonna be learning. I think we'll learn. I don't think we'll know everything else. I, I think we'll learn. And I think we're gonna learn things about God throughout all of eternity that are gonna blow our minds. So your question, is it true that God is outside of time? Well, let's consider that. Um, if God is in our universe and didn't create it, but is bound was in it, then he'd be bound by time. But God created everything that was made. In fact, John 1 tells us Jesus created it, and without Jesus, nothing that was created has been created. And that would include Christ himself, meaning in the body, in the flesh. And so, um, and so God has to be outside of time. So he created the time, space, matter continuum. And there are ways in which time, space, and matter are bound together and God created them. And so God is not bound by time, by space, or by matter. The Bible tells us to God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So God could be looking down at everything that's happened know it all from beginning to end, and we're in the middle of it. Pastor Chuck used to use a parade as an example. If I'm standing on a street corner and a float goes by, it was here, now it's in front of me, but God could look down and see the float in front of me and see what's coming up behind me. Uh, it's what's gonna be coming up that I'm gonna see in the parade. And and the 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 blimp sees it from all the directions, from all of it, the whole thing. So God sees time differently, which means I ought to really trust him. Because if I'm living in time and God's outside of time, then he knows what's best for me. No wonder the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Um, 
my wife leans towards us knowing more in heaven. I lean towards us not knowing a lot. I think we can pretty much say that we are not omniscient. God is. God knows all things. Uh, we won't know all things in heaven. At least I don't know of any passage. It does say that we will be known as we are known, which I would not take to mean we know everything. The passage says that we, when we see him, we will be known as we are known. We know about ourselves. We see things from God's perspective is what I think that that's saying. All right, we can take a look and look up that passage and take a look as to whether or not I'm correct on that as well. All right, so Annika uh, has a question. Uh, you mentioned the represent uh, the uh, rep of number seven, okay, um, in the book of Revelation. Okay, so the, the numerology aspect of the number seven, that it is completeness, seven days in a week, seven notes in a scale, um, and that it speaks of perfection, not in the sense that we think of perfection, but more in the sense of completeness. What is the significance of this? Does seven really have special meaning in the Bible or just coincidence? No, I think um, that it represents the, I, that it represents completeness. You have seven churches in the book of Revelation that would represent all churches. I think all churches could be found in those seven churches. You've got the seven spirits of God that are really the Holy Spirit, that it's the seven spirits of God that the lamb has and sees everything that happens around the world. And God is omniscient. He knows everything that's taking place at all times that are around the world. And you see the number seven used over and over again. So I do think that there is something to numerology. The number is the number of God, six is the number of man. Um, when you see the number seven, you want to think about it as completeness. Do I think it has to be that way all the time? No, but I haven't tested it. I haven't gone back to see where seven is brought up in the Bible and it doesn't talk about completing things, finishing things, um, starting a new cycle after seven. Uh, I think that these things are, are in numerology and that they do represent um, different things. All right, Annika, I appreciate that. You see this in the book of Revelation especially, but I think that you can see it in other places as well. As, as a seven days a week in the day of rest. And um, some believe that there will be 7,000 years of history. And for those who believe in the young earth, that we are somewhere around 5,000 and something years, coming close to 6,000 years of human history. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate that, Annika. Uh, I do believe that the number, that numerology, 3, 40, 7, all have special meaning uh, to certain words. All right. So we have a follow-up from, well, let's go back up here to this question first. I almost missed this one. Hour drive, um, question, Calvary, Phoenix, three-hour drive. What are we waiting for? Hint, hint. All right. So I don't know, Justin, what that question is. All right, uh, so we're just gonna go to Kimberly's. Kimberly, uh, Kimberly says, hi, Pastor, so good to see you. Good to see you too, Kimberly. Ephesians 5, 25 through 28, don't you think that verses 22 and 24 should have been written first? All right, let's take a look at this. So Ephesians 5, and I'm gonna take this, that this is the, um, the role of the men and the woman, I think. I may be wrong, but let's just go and look. 
uh, 25 through 28. So we're going to start in 25. Yep. So um, you're asking about 22 through 24. Should they have been um, written before them, right? Should have been written first. Okay, first. All right, so let's start in 25. So I'm going to put this up on the screen for you. So it says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Which I find that, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say most men, a lot of men that complain about the woman not keeping up her role, the men are not keeping up this role. And the men definitely have the harder part to, to die for their wives as, and to love them as Christ so loved the church. And then it says, that he might sanctify her through the cleansing of the washing of the water of the word, that he might present her to him, himself a glorious church. Now that's Jesus washing us by the water of the word. God's word helps us to be pure and to present us as a glorious church. And so we wanna love our wives and help them to be presented as glorious to Christ, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has hated his own his own self. So you were asking about 22 through 24, wives submit, what did I do? Did I just skip over those? Okay, oh, I see, wives submit to your own husbands. So you're wondering why, so the question I think that you're asking is why wives come second, is that right? I mean, why wives go first? Hi, pastor. Uh, so good to see you. Ephesians 25 through 28. Do you think the verses 22 through 24 should have been written first? All right. So they were, right? Wives submit therefore to your own husbands in the Lord, for your husband is the head of the wife also. Christ is the head of the church, and he is this, uh, the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything, and then it goes on to the husband section that I read. So I'm just looking at your question again here, Kimberly, if it's written the way that you um, meant it to be written. Let me go ahead and bring that in again. All right, um, Ephesians 25, 25, 28, do you think verses 20 through 24 should have been written first? And I, th yes, I think they were written first, and I think they should be. And um, the, quite, the reason that you might be thinking this is it seems like it's more significant for the man to love his wife than for a woman to be submissive to her husband. Um, but for whatever reason, God put first wives up first. And this might have to do with the struggle that came from the curse of the law. I could realize I'm opening up a can of worms here. Um, but there is the passage where it says to the woman, your desire for shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. We could look at that in a few different translations to try to get a, a feeling for what, exactly what that is. But it seems like Paul wanted to address wives first and then address the husbands. And maybe that's a good way to do it because the wife might think, boy, this is not really fair. And then get to the husband's role and go, oh, then I really do need to respect my husband and, and be submissive unto him. And again, the idea of submission here, such a such a bad word for our culture but it's not a bad word biblically and before this it says submit therefore to one another and um it, it also doesn't mean that the husband has complete control and makes every decision 
it, it means that there are times when the husband says, I'm going to take the leadership role here. And I think that things work out better in the home when that takes place, just because it's God's design. It's what God wants. But any good manager, you can have a, you can have a, a manager that manages a team and the team is in submission to the manager, but the manager knows I have weaknesses and they have strengths. And I'm going to let them go where their strengths are. So a husband that is really wise is going to recognize the strengths of his wife and, and submit to those things. Understand that she is going to have better suggestions in certain ways. And it's a, a bad manager is somebody who just says, you're going to do things my way. The Bible says that if any of you think you are wise, I think this is James 5, if any of you think you are wise, then... Uh, talks about the wisdom of God, that it will yield first. And I found that good leadership is when you yield to those under you when they have good ideas. Or maybe it's a neutral idea. And so you let somebody run with it. You yield to them to let them go ahead and do it. Um, so I don't know if I'm just rambling now, um, Kimberly, but I do, I do think, yes, that God did want, first of all, for there to be the the direction to the wives and that may, might be because there were wives not wanting to submit to their husbands and um the submission is far more well well we know that wives are even to submit to the ungodly husbands uh for evangelism and that's a, a wild thought that the husband would see that and may come to christ if he sees that the wife is really respecting him and giving him that position all right. Follow up. Do you think Satan was living uh, a living musical instrument? Did we look this up before? Is this the right passage? Thanks, Rod. Let's look it up. Ezekiel. Let's see if I can find Ezekiel here. <clears throat> there it is. Ezekiel 28, 13. I think we got the right one now. You were eating the garden of God, every precious stone, which you're covering. Okay, let's go ahead and uh, look at it, Rod, and we'll follow up. <clears throat> All right. So here it says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. And I think he was there tempting Adam and Eve. Every precious stone was your covering and sardis and topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes were prepared for you on the day you were created. All right, so his body seems to be jewels. Um, every precious stone was your covering now, does this mean that this angel who fell, Satan, was made out of, of jewels? And it could be. Then in the glory of God, what would he have looked like? He would have just shown. Uh, jewels are made to reflect the light in the best possible way. They're cut. The facets are cut so that they reflect the light in the, in the best possible way. And so if he had jewels all over him, then they would have been cut to reflect God's glory in the best possible way. And maybe that led to his, <clears throat> to, to his pride in thinking that he was something like we all might think we're something and we might be in the presence of God, but apart from God, we are really nothing. And then it says, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes were prepared for you on the day you were created. You were in the anointed cherub who covers the eye, establish you. 
you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked <clears throat> back and forth in the midst of the stone, the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were established till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence. All right, so we come back to the creation of these pipes and timbrels. So a couple of different thoughts. Um, so I, I do believe the workmanship of your timbrels, that that is a musical instrument. Uh, what is this? This is, um, let's see. Yeah, this is 13, right? Ezekiel 28, 13. So I'm going to go ahead. Let me go ahead and pull it up in Strong's. And we'll just take a look at what these words mean. Ezekiel 28, 13. All right. Let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you now. <clears throat> this is the Strong's Concordance. Uh, Ezekiel 28, 13, I already went past it. All right, so there it says, the workmanship of your, of thy ta tabrets and thy pipes. So let's just take a look at those words. So tabrets, um, tambourine, timbrel, okay? So that's a musical instrument. And I'm sure pipes is a musical instrument as well. <clears throat> um, a pipe, okay, yeah. Like Strong's, so often you just get kind of like, you know, some very basic words that are said there. Um, so a couple of thoughts that I have here, and I would need to look at it a little bit more. If this is the only passage that talks about this, are, are these created for him as kind of an accoutrement to him? To where he has a tambourine and pipes that are made for him because he would lead music? Or was his body created as a as a as a as with with instruments built into his body and um i don't know that the text really helps us with this uh, that um we see that you were clothed with it seems that that's his body and then uh the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes were prepared for you on the day you were created so is this in his body or is this something that was prepared for him i think you could also say and maybe if we understood Hebrew, we might be able to tell. Um, but are these stones literally his clothes? Was was that the clothes that this angel would wear? Or, or was that his body? Uh, we, we hear people all the time talk about it being his body. So I would kind of have that reference. Um, so now if he did have music, if he was a musical instrument, <clears throat> here's an interesting thing. I don't know that the Bible ever talks about angels singing. In Job, it talks about the morning stars singing and all the sons of God shouting for joy. And in the, the Christmas story, you have the angels appearing and saying glory to God in the highest. And we, we often say singing, but it doesn't do that. And some have suggested that Satan was the worship leader in heaven. That's a leap that maligns worship leaders everywhere, by the way. So I don't know that we can make a connection because he had timbrels and pipes. Were there other angels that had timbrels and pipes? Was he the worship leader in heaven? We do, we do know that there is singing and worship that takes place in the book of Revelation. So there's still worship and singing going on in heaven. And um, 
yeah, I don't know what else we could follow up and learn from that. But um, yeah, I do believe that Satan had instruments and played them and played music, which could be one of the reasons that here music is so corrupt. And, uh, and, and has been, it may be just be an area that Satan is specifically good at corrupting. And I think that music is, I think it's a gift from God. I think that there's something good about us listening to music, songs getting stuck in our head and the rhythm that goes along with it and maybe connected to the rhythm of life. And I, I know I may be sounding a little bit weird now, so we'll move on, but I do appreciate uh, your question, uh, and hopefully I answered it. If not, you can give a, a little bit more direct uh, question about it, follow-up. I'd appreciate that. Um, so uh, Kimberly has another question. Follow-up, correction, hi, Pastor. Uh, don't you think Paul should have written Ephesians 25 through 28 first and then 24 and 25? Yeah, that's um, Yeah, that's what I thought that you were asking that it seems because a husband is to love his wife the way Christ loves the church. And there's so much detail in there that if the husband's doing that, it would make the wife's role easier to submit. But for whatever reason, God directed Paul to write to the women first and then to the husbands later. Um, and, and I think quite often, Kimberly, I don't think it really matters. I, I think we could look at it and go, yeah, God just wants us to be concerned about us. So if, if a wife says, I'm not going to submit to my husband because he's not loving me the way Christ loves the church. And if a husband says, I'm not going to love her the way that, that Christ loves the church because she's not submitting to me. Now we've got everything backwards. I'm not responsible to make you do something. And I'm not set free from my responsibility because my wife doesn't do something. And she's not set free from her responsibility because I don't do something. We have our own responsibilities and we'll answer before God for what we did and said. And <clears throat> the shortcomings of a, of a husband or a wife cannot come into play to what the word of God says. The word of God tells us. I see why you say that if the husband comes first, it looks like it makes the wife's role easier. But maybe, you know, maybe he just, God just chose to have the wife's part first and then to bring the husband in as an emphasis on how much more difficult it is for the husband. I, I mean, if we were just to reverse it and husbands were to be submissive to their wives and women were to love their husbands like Christ loves the church and dies, for, or like, yeah, loves the church and dies for him, then I think that we would go, well, yeah, that's the more difficult role. And it should be that way. And anytime that I see a husband complaining about what his wife's not doing, and I bring this up, are you loving her? Are you dying for her? I get excuses and people that will brush it off when they're not living for them and dying for them. Um, it becomes obvious that they're not later on. All right, so thank you, Kimberly. Yeah, that's kind of what I, I got from it, but I appreciate the way that you reworded it. All right, so um, again, good to see you guys. If you're visiting or if this is your first time here today, really glad to have you. We hope that God blesses you. If you have a question, write the word question out and then reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. And uh, we will get to it in the course, uh, get to as many as we can in the course of the time that we have together.
All right. So um, we have a question from Melissa. And um, I think I might do this one without bringing it on the screen, Melissa. Uh, question. My sister's boyfriend is married. She says she's saved. Will she still go to heaven if she does uh, dies of this unrepentant sin? Um, <clears throat> all right. So your sister's boyfriend is married. And <clears throat> there's, there's a lot I don't know in the question. I don't know whether she's sexually active with him. And it is sin for a woman to have an emotional connection with a married man. So that would be sin. And if she's unrepentant and won't take any direction, and you find this often with relationships, it's unfortunate. Relationships should be the first things we put into the hands of God, knowing that what God wants from us is good. And if he doesn't want something for us, he doesn't want it. And I've seen people fight to hang on to a relationship. I remember there was a couple in our church that were having an affair. And when we confronted them about it, they were like, this is true love, kind of like the princess bride. This is true love. And so how could God ever be against true love? And how could true love ever be bad? And they got married. We removed them from the church. They got married. They both had husbands and wives, respectively, in the church. And their true love marriage lasted for two weeks. And then they got divorced because God knows best all of the time. So whether or not she is saved is really hard for you and I to say. If she is just in complete rebellion against God and doesn't want to do what God wants her to do, you'll, you'll often find that people will say, well, I believe this is okay. I, I, I love God. They will defend their position and they'll try to say why it's okay for them to have it. Um, the Bible says, if you love Christ, you'll keep his commandments. And if you say that you love him and you don't keep his commandments, then you're a liar. And so for someone to go, I'm just going to go against what God's word says, then I think that's problematic and might reveal that there's no real relationship with Christ. And maybe I would start to talk to her as someone who needs to make a commitment to Christ. Whether or not she's ever invited him in before and knows him, she's away from him now. She's away from his fellowship. And if she's a child of God, there will be discipline. And the disciplining of God is grievous. So it can bring about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And, and the, the, that's the way that I would, I would go into a warning. This is not good. And if she were married, how would she feel if another woman had a relationship with her husband? And I'm sure there's all kinds of justification going on. Well, he's like, um, she's like this, she's like that. Then why doesn't he leave her if she's like this and she's like that? So yeah, I think it's greatly problematic. Your question though goes into the area of judgment and we just don't know enough. I don't know if you know enough. You might know enough to be able to say, that she's not a genuine Christian. I just don't know enough about how she's justified it um, and um, how she's justified this sin. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm listening to an episode of the Mars Hill podcast uh, and it's on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. 
and they have some supplement passages on it. And um, one of the guys was talking about, this might be Tim Keller that was talking about, um, it might be another guy that they had on there, one of their two later after podcasts. And um, I think it was Tim Keller who was talking about a man that had an affair continually. He's a pastor and he had had an affair continually and his conscience would get him. How can I, how can I get up and preach when I've got this going on? So that on Friday that he told whoever this was that on Friday, I would tell myself, well, I'm going to preach through the weekend and then I'm going to, I'm going to cut it off. And then he would go and preach and his gift would kick in or he was good at it. And then he would go, well, I'm gifted and God's with me anyway on Monday. And he just continued on until the affair was finally exposed. And that's what the Bible says, that those things that are done in secret will be shouted from the rooftop, which is why I tell people, then just, just repent, confess your sin to God and repent. So will she still go to heaven if she's unrepentant of the sin? I would think that this is a severe sin and I would question their salvation. Doesn't mean I'm judging them. I'm just saying, can you genuinely be saved and, and be in an affair? And how are you justifying that to yourself? Sin is so deceptive and can be super self-deceptive. And so, uh, Melissa, your friend may really, really be, or your sister, I guess it was, right? Yeah, <clears throat> may really be deceived under self-deception. And um, that's what I be, would be praying for as well, because sin is so deceptive and we can be self-deceived so easily. And I've seen it so often. All right, so thank you very much. Uh, so, um, let me look, see if we've got any more questions here. Well, we are starting to come to the end of the podcast. If you have a question, go ahead and write out the word question and, um, then write out, you reread your question. And even if you submit it now, I'll, I'll get this log. And next week when I'm looking for the opening question, I often take it from this log. If someone has a question from a previous study, I'll take that as well. But if you have a question now, don't think, oh, it doesn't have enough time to answer it. Ask the question, and if it's if I use it as a beginning, then great. And if I don't, you can re-ask the question later on. All right. Um, so we have a question from Susan. Susan says, "Can you talk about the significance of the mouth, the month of Elul? Wondering how prepared for the Feast of Tabernacles. How to prepare for the Feast of Tabernacles? Thank you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I." I'm just going to pass on this because I don't know enough about it. I know the Feast of Tabernacles is in September. I know it's a two-day event. Um, oh, the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Feast of Tabernacles is different. So, um, yeah, I, I just, it's been a long time since I've done any work on the Feast at all. And I know that they all speak of Christ. And I know the Feast of Tabernacles was them living in Tabernacles to remember the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness for so long. Um, but yeah, I, I can't give you any direction on how to prepare for the Feast of Tabernacles, what it means to us as Christians right now. Um, I just haven't done work on it in a long time and anything that I would be saying on it would just be speaking would be guesses. And I really don't want to do that. So I'll just have to pass on that question now. Sorry about that. Um, I would rather do that than just start making something up. So it sounds like I know what I'm talking about when it probably would be obvious that I didn't, by the way. Right. So I think that that uh, is the case. So I'll just take a look here and see if there's any more questions. If not, we'll wrap things up. It is good to see you guys. Good to have you here. We do have a service tonight 
at uh, six o'clock. You can watch it online. It's a six at the East Campus, 715 at the West Campus. Uh, you can join us here if you're live. If you're in Tucson, we would love to have you here with us. Um, for, for this, this is our study of the book of Revelation. We're going to be covering verses four through eight. Uh, we've got the seven spirits that send grace and peace with the Father and the Son. So the question is, who are these seven spirits before the throne? Uh, we'll be talking about that uh, so much in this section of scripture, and I, I think it's really going to be good. All right. So, um, Keith, thank you for being here. Um, Vance, good to see you. Thank you for your encouragement, brother. I appreciate that. And um, stay close to Jesus. Keep loving him. Keep searching the word of God that you can know what God's word says so you can know what to believe. And um, I'm so thankful that we are to wear the belt of truth and that we want to seek the truth. And this means that we have to be open, that my feelings might be wrong and what I think could be wrong. And we're so used to some pride coming in and allowing us to think that, you know, I can just figure things out the way I think is probably correct. When instead we go, Lord, what does your word say? Because I want to know the truth and the truth will set me free. All right. So thank you very much uh, for joining us today. I really appreciate you guys. Love you. Love the community that's being built here. And uh, if you um, have any questions, you can just go to our YouTube page, leave your question on any video, and um, I'll be able to take a look at that and perhaps use that for the next, uh, for Saturday's uh, Q&A. All right. So thank you guys very much. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm out. Uh, stay close to Jesus. The Lord bless you. Um, may God lift up his face upon you and, um, and give you peace. May he lift his countenance on you and, and, and be gracious unto you. All right. God bless you guys. Love you. We'll see you later on.